All right, in our third and final segment, let's do a bit old and a bit new. One old thing we like to do is obituaries. We think the passing of some people is worthy of note, and we have two today I think we want to talk about. First, the death of Ewald Heinrich von Kleist. He died in his home in Munich on March 8th. He was 90 years old and is believed to be the last surviving member of an elaborate plot to kill Adolf Hitler during World War II. Like many Germans involved in the efforts to kill Hitler, Mr. von Kleist was a soldier, a lieutenant in the German army. But his family long be, had long been active in German resistance. In January of 1944, he was 22 and recuperating in Berlin from wounds he'd suffered in combat when he was approached by Colonel Klaus von Stauffenberg to join an assassination plot. At the time, Mr. von Kleist led a unit that was scheduled to meet with Hitler and show him new army uniforms. Stauffenberg asked von Kleist to take along hidden explosives, which he would then detonate at the meeting. In a 1992 documentary, von Kleist said, I found it a very difficult decision, I must say. He asked Stauffenberg for a day to decide, then he traveled home from Berlin to talk with his father. Evidently, his father had been arrested many times for resistance activity. When he explained the difficult decision he was contemplating to his father, the old man said, yes, of course, you have to do it. Von Kleist replied, yes, I have to blow up with the colonel. Says so his father went to the window, looked out the window for a moment, and then turned back and said, yes, you have to do that. A man who doesn't take such a chance will never be happy again in his life. Von Kleist agreed to go ahead with the plan, but Hitler canceled at the last moment. So it was that in July of 1944, Stauffenberg, whose army role gave him access to top leaders, decided to leave a bomb under a table during a meeting with Hitler and his, his aides at Wolf's Lair his headquarters in East Prussia. Von Kleist was among several conspirators whose job was to wait in Berlin to be ready to stage a coup once Hitler's death was confirmed. When the bombing took place on July 20th, four men were killed, but Hitler was only slightly injured. The Nazi hierarchy eventually killed more than 5,000 people associated with or supportive of those involved in the plot. Von Kleist's father was arrested on July 21st and killed in prison in April. Von Kleist himself was taken for questioning at Gestapo headquarters in the day of the bombing. The obituary notes that while he served time in prison with other conspirators, charges against him were eventually dropped for reasons not immediately clear. He was assigned to combat duty on front lines. Von Kleist told the National Post that he'd benefited from the fact that conspirators who were being tortured did not disclose his involvement. Here's the part in the obit I find most curious. Notes that Mr. Von Kleist gave few interviews about his role in the plot. For a long time, attitudes in Germany about the efforts were complex. Some people initially regarded it as treason. But as decades passed, more people embraced the plot, and for many years, Germany's leaders have been holding memorial services on July 20th, sometimes accompanied by Ewald Heinrich von Kleist. It's noted that while he appeared in several documentaries about the plot, he was neither involved in nor portrayed in Valkyrie, the 2008 film about the plot starring Tom Cruise. And I want to add editorially that, uh, say what you will about Tom Cruise, you can't take away Risky Business and Valkyrie from him. They're both great movies. And sadly, I think that this movie about the plot to kill Hitler was uh, not seen by as many as it should have been. Uh, if you've not checked it out, dear listener, I advise you to do so. Also, passing away recently, in this case on February 27th, was pianist Van Cliburn. Noted The Economist, He peaked too early, said his detractors, but what a peak. 
He was the first classical musical star of the television age, the only one feeded with tick a ticker tape parade, the first to sell a million copies of an album. It all happened by chance. Having failed the medical for his military service because he had nosebleeds, America's most promising young pianist was facing a blank season for 1958. His teacher suggested the International Tchaikovsky Competition in Moscow. You should note at this time the Cold War was at its iciest. Sputnik was bleeping mockingly at the earthbound Americans who feared they were losing the race in space and elsewhere. Clyburn was quite the rising young star. He'd won his first competition at age 12 and played Carnegie Hall at age 14. At the international competition, he was, in sense, he was a sensation in the first round, a star by the semifinals. By the final chords of Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto, which he reportedly played in one long, deep breath, Moscow's music lovers were at his feet. Even the orchestra joined in the standing ovation which lasted eight minutes against all tradition at the Moscow Conservatory. Now, keeping in mind this was the Cold War and, <laughs> and a lot of politics were involved, some of the judges shaved points from his score to boost the Soviet contestant, Lev Vlasenko. But reportedly, piano giant Sviatoslav Richter sabotaged the sabotage, crossingly awarding zero to other competitors and the full 25 points to Mr. Clyburn. The Soviet bureaucrats were aghast at the prospect of an American victory, and they turned to none other than Nikita Khrushchev himself. The general secretary asked them, is he the best? Yes, came their answer. Then give him first prize, said Khrushchev. Noted The Economist, it was an inspired move. The Soviet Union suddenly looked fair-minded and friendly, showcasing its cultural riches, not its nuclear arsenal. For 20 years after that, Van Cliburn was an international celebrity. In 1978, though, he took a sabbatical, which proved to be semi-permanent. Apparently, though, in 1987, he played at the White House, the Reagan White House, for a prickly Mikhail Gorbachev making his first visit to Washington. Note of the magazine, he was supposed to finish promptly, but when he struck up Moscow nights, the Reagans, the Gorbachevs, and other dignitaries started a teary sing-along. They close by noting his 1958 victory could have had no better finale. Now, the piece we did earlier about uh, deploying defensive missiles to counter the North Korean threat, does have one, um, one rival here in today's program for stupidest or wackiest or most out-to-lunch story, though in this case this is certainly apples and oranges, but the piece in Sacramento Magazine on why Sacramento is better than San Francisco does deserve to be quoted from. The article starts out diplomatically enough by referring to San Francisco as the blowhard by the bay. I'll just quote from it. I admit it. San Francisco's cool. Damn chilly, in fact. Eccentric. Expensive, too. It's kind of like an elderly relative you visit. Despite a familial connection, you feel a tad uncomfortable finding their manners and rant a bit odd. The situation, at times, off-putting. Well, there may be something to that. And uh, I would say that uh, this correspondent could live down in the Bay Area, could live in Sacramento, and I elect to live here in the greater... Davis area, 
And the article does make some valid points about what's good about this area. Well, we do have some, we do have four legitimate seasons with uh, fall and spring being especially nice. I don't think winter is any different than the Bay Area, and summer, unfortunately, is a lot worse than the Bay Area. The cost of living is more affordable here than there. And although real estate developers like Angelo Sacopoulos have done their mightiest to wreck the advantage we have in Sacramento, it's still true that our commute times are, are less. But I really have to take a step back, look at Sacramento Magazine, and just say, really, guys, is this the best you can do? When they make some of the following comparisons. Comparing <laughs> Sacramento's Tower Bridge to the Golden Gate Bridge, Sacramento Magazine notes, our bridge actually is golden. And Mr. McMillan adds, and you don't have to pay a toll to go across it either. But as you may or may not recall, Mayor Heather Fargo was profoundly embarrassed when the color <laughs> of the Tower Bridge was revealed. In fact, people at Caltrans was pointing fingers to try and say, well, it's not our fault. But let's face it, while the Golden Gate Bridge maybe isn't golden so much as a uh, deep orange color, our so-called Golden Bridge really looks more like a color that's across maybe between the yellow of urine and the green of bile. It is, sad to say, a bit of an embarrassment. Uh, Sacker Magazine also points out that uh, we're closer to Lake Tahoe. <laughs> that's pretty indisputable. Of course, San Francisco is considerably closer to San Francisco Bay. Also, Monterey Bay. Also, the wine country. Also, the ocean. So yes, we are closer to Tahoe, and that's cool, but that doesn't really make the case for Sacramento now, does it? Nor does this item, which I presume they offer up with a straight face. Notes, Sacramento Magazine, until this past October... San Francisco had zero Target stores. Now it has one, whereas we have five. Boy, somebody phoned Mayor Kevin Johnson that, I guess, Target stores really make us a world-class city, don't they? And speaking of the mayor, this one may just take the cake. Sacramento Magazine points out that our mayor can beat their mayor in a game of one-on-one, -on -one, pointing out that Sacramento Mayor Kevin Johnson is six foot one and had a 12-year NBA career, to which they add that we don't know the actual height of San Francisco's mayor, Ed Lee. And uh, it does point out in the magazine that there are some problems flying out of San Francisco International Airport because of the nearby fog bank and parallel runways. Uh, sometimes its on-time arrival and departure stats are less than stellar. But let's be serious, folks. We have to compare San Francisco International to Sacramento's airport, because I'm pretty sure they didn't put a people mover in SFO for no good reason. Another bonus to SFO, their flights actually do go internationally. And how about this for an earth-shaking reason why Sacramento is better than San Francisco? Our sales tax, 8.5%. Their sales tax, 8.75%. In conclusion, I would note that one advantage San Francisco does have over Sacramento is that it doesn't have Sacramento Magazine. All right, let's close uh, today's program with an item out of Discover Magazine, a piece called 20 Things You Didn't Know About Coffee. Pretty much the showstopper item out of these 20 items is number 19. Notes Discover, 
Coffee cherries, which is the fruit that bears the beloved beans, are a favorite snack of elephants, and the beans, or seeds, can be harvested, already hulled, from their dung. Notes discover, and I quote, Smooth and caramel-tasting elephant dung coffee has been known to sell for $500 a pound. Uh, By next week's show, we're going to see what the Nairobi Starbucks has to say about that particular blend. But that about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. Our profound thanks to Christina Borgeson for coming on today's show, which she did on very short notice. We hope to have her on again real soon. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned to next week's program where we may have Mary Roach talk about her latest effort, Gulp, Adventures on the Elementary Canal. If we don't get to that in next week's program, it'll be the week after. Alternative for next week's show is to talk about someone who snuck across the Mexican border not once, not twice, but four separate times. It's a curious tale Mr. McMillan and I have been highly amused by, and we hope we can bring him on to share it with you, dear listener. So check in next week.